I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. We are rocking and rolling. Amy Lemstra. Hi, how are, how are you? you doing? Okay, so I'm driving. Um, it wasn't quite to here. It was earlier in the day. I was going to where we were doing school. And I'm like, oh, what am I going to, what am I going to ask Amy? Like, how are we going to open this? I'm like, you know, what, what made you go to Africa? And I'm like, hold up, whoa, whoa, hold up. Nicaragua is in Africa, right? <laughs> no. And I was like thinking like, you dipstick. That's not in Africa. That's why she's learning Spanish. Spanish isn't commonly... So I'm like, I just did some Googling really quickly to find out exactly where Nicaragua is <laughs> and like double checking um, my facts on that one. Um, it's, am I correct? It's, um, it's on the same island as Honduras? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. And those two, what, nation states, countries, how do they, how would they identify themselves? Um, Nicaragua is a sovereign nation. Okay. Uh, it's Latin American. It's above Costa Rica, which is where most people will go on a nice vacation. And right. I would say that Nicaragua is actually more beautiful. It has some of the best beaches and surf turf in Ooh. the world. Um, it is paradise on earth. Um, Nicaragua. Nicaragua, yeah. Cool. Did you try surfing? I did. Were um, you really bad at it? No. Really? I suck at surfing. I'm awful at it. I, I wasn't bad, but I asked, I, I actually hired a local Nicaraguan guy at the beach. Um, Raul, I asked him to teach me how to surf and he was like, yeah, man, I got you. Um, <laughs> and so he taught me, but here's the thing. I'm super out of shape, especially after like quarantine and not really doing a lot. And so you practice on the beach first. Mm-hmm. And so he had me doing like the jumping up on t- into the standing position. And after like doing that for like five minutes straight, I was like, this is the biggest workout I've done all year <laughs> other than climbing a couple of volcanoes. And so by the time I actually got out in the water, I was like, I'm so tired. <laughs> I was like, These muscles, they're not ready for this. So I wasn't awful at it. And he was really, really good at helping me catch a wave because that's yep. an art form in itself. Um, but I really struggled to get up because my legs were like jelly already and I can do three push-ups in a row before I'm done for the day and I'd already done 20. Um, so, you know, it, it was really fun. The beach was beautiful. The surf was perfect. My instructor was super fun and we just like sat on the board and chatted while we waited for waves, which was really cool. But I sucked, not because surfing itself, like I actually got up pretty easily, but mm. because I'm just so out of shape. Um, and... I'd only been in about three hours, so I was just starting to get things when uh, I got picked up by a huge wave, and he'd been teaching me how to, like, duck and mm-hmm. not get smoked by it, um, but I got smoked by it, and I got thrown off the board, and then the board landed on me Oh no! right on my head, and so I, I was, like, very dizzy, and... Uh, I was like, for real, I had just planned this whole weekend at this beach to learn surfing, like two full days of it. Yeah. And I was sitting on the board and (laughs) that hit on the head made me so seasick. I couldn't sit and have the motion of the waves. 
So I did three hours of surfing. <laughs> and I had told him, I was like, Raul, I'm going to come back and we'll, um, <clears throat> we'll come back tomorrow. And by the end of that three hours, I was like, Raul, I might be back tomorrow, but I might not. <laughs> And I didn't go back. The poor dude. Just sitting there. He's still <laughs> I waiting. I was like, I'm so sorry. I promised you a job for two days. and But he was he was cool. He was so good at surfing. At one point, I was like, here, why don't you just take a board and I will just watch you surf yeah. from the water, which was a really cool experience as well. So I did surf. Nice. I didn't totally suck, but I totally got hurt. <laughs> nice. I, I did a bit of surfing in Australia and then... Ooh. A bunch more in Florida with uh, Pastor Pastor Eric Watkins tried to teach me, nice. and I thought like I was so cocky getting into it. I'm like, bruh, I longboard, I snowboard. Yeah. It's another board. I'm gonna be amazing. Like the worst. I could not catch a wave to save my life. <laughs> oh, no. I couldn't stay on it. Like I couldn't. I didn't. I, I was bad. I was very very bad. I'm sorry. It's a good feeling when you do get up. Like, it's it's a rush, and I have snowboarded as well. And it wasn't my greatest skill, but water sports is actually one of the only type of sports I'm good at. Nice. <laughs> um, so I was like, maybe this, maybe this will be my sport, and it still could be hypothetically, um, uh, but it wasn't then, right? Because um, I was a little worried I was going to pass out in the water and drown. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, snowboarding—you don't really drown from snow very mm-hmm. often. You can't sink too far in snow. No, that's but, uh, true. But water is water is a bit of a deadly. Yeah. And there's sharks. There's no sharks in snowboarding. There was no sharks there that I knew of, but there were jellyfish and I did get a jellyfish sting. Yeah? Yeah. My friend got one on his butt. <laughs> and it was so funny. Uh, I was trying to be sympathetic and I just was laughing at him. I was like, I know how bad this hurts, but you got stung on the butt. <laughs> so, all right. So we're talking about Nicaragua because yeah. you are a missionary there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um or were and are you hoping to go back, right? Yeah, I'm currently employed by the mission organization and working from Canada, but that ends in another month. And then either I go back f- more as a career missionary for a longer period of time, mm-hmm. or honestly, I don't know. God can send me anywhere and I'll sure. go, but I don't know. Gotcha. And you, uh, you've been there for the past... Just what? over... Um, I left in September of 2019. I left Canada and I got right. back in December of 2020. Okay. So you're there for a solid year. More year, than a year, year and a bit, yeah. Year and a bit, yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. So I knew you were back. We bumped into each other a couple times, mm-hmm. and I was like, I should chat with Amy, catch up with. We just had a really lovely uh, meal before this, just catching yeah. up and going over some uh, old stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and now we're we're here and we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. And so we we talked a bit about how, like I think you said it best, like how did you get into this is like a huge question that can go in a lot of different areas Mm -hmm. but i'll throw that at you how how did you get into why did you get into deciding to be a missionary what what brought you there yeah so i could tell you the whole entire story of my life and how god was leading me up to that um i remember from even a young age just always thinking like i'll probably get married really young which by the way i didn't um Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but uh, I, I always thought, well, if I don't get married, then my other dream life would be to just abandon ship in Canada and go live somewhere, probably an orphanage, and be like the house mom in an orphanage. And I just was like, someday, I hope to do that. And um, 
So I'll back up to, I guess, early 2019, I had gotten out of a relationship and realized marriage wasn't going to be it for me for a while. And I was very okay with that. I'm very thankful that God did lead me that way. But um, at that time, I was Christian in action, but not in fruit. So I, I knew catechism and I had professed my faith and I'd gone to church twice on Sunday for years, but my heart, um, I guess the best way I can describe it is Christianity was a mask I wore because that was a community I'd grown up in and it had been kind of an on and off thing for me, um, to some, uh, various degrees of success. And I'd really struggled with it for a lot of time, but I hadn't found a way to express that in any real way to the people around me. And I remember in January of 2019, I was driving around. It was early January. This wasn't a New Year's resolution, but it was right around that time. And I just was praying in my car. It's kind of the ideal place to pray in my mind um, because it's quiet and you can talk out loud. And those conversations get pretty intense. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to God, God, I'm so sick of controlling my life. And I've tried off and on for years to love you. And I don't know what that looks like. And I've tried to serve you. And I just, I'm realizing I suck. (laughs) I came to the conclusion, like, I'm so sick of trying. I will never, ever be anything worthwhile. And I felt that really deep down. And um, so I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm done with the corporate world. I'm done with the right face, the right mask to wear in church. As, and I said, okay, God, like wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do. And I was like, you can send me to a jungle somewhere and I'm scared of spiders, but I'll go. Um, you can have me go back to school and join corporate Canada and I'll do it. And I'm super intimidated by that as well, but I will go wherever you send me, whatever you call me to do. Um, I'm giving up on my own, my own things because I'm finding them useless and I'm going to do whatever you said in front of me. Um, and literally an hour and a half later, I had been invited to share my testimony somewhere. I had been given an opportunity to speak at a young women's conference. Like I was like, I'm not qualified for this, but I just promised God I'd do this. So I guess I am going to do this. And Throughout that year, I committed to loving my community well. I saw a need for mentorship and discipleship in my home community. And I really saw how much impact that could have on specifically young women, having an older woman invested in their lives and kind of sharing the wisdom that the body of Christ has through its different ages and passions. Um, and so I took that up and I started to just talk with people. I, I just committed to using my own community as a mission ground. And during that time, I was also looking at, you know, is there somewhere abroad that I could go? Because I, I just really felt that God was calling me to it. And I really desired to be trained. And I, I thought being outside of my own context where I was comfortable would be really um, uncomfortable and healthy and just good. And so I started talking with different organizations, different people who were wise in my life. I, I did a lot of writing, uh, cause that's how I process things. So I wrote down, why do I want to go to what purpose? What is God calling me to? What are my gifts? What are not my gifts? 
Um, and from there, I, I was connected with different organizations. Now, I'm from the URC, and ideally at that point in time, I would have loved to have partnered with my denomination. But the URC specifically works in church planting. Um, and what that means is that as a single young woman who definitely was not called to or was going to be a pastor, there wasn't really a space for me. And that was kind of hard to hear because the different leaders, my elders and, and leaders in the URC said, hey, we see God's call on your life, but we just don't have anything for you. We can't give you any opportunities because we're not involved in those things. Um, and that was really hard to hear. And I, I really hope that someday the URC specifically will become involved in different outlets because I think there are people who have gifts who would use them given the opportunity. And mm -hmm. I think as a denomination, there's a lot worth sharing. Um, but what ended up happening is I was connected to Resonate Global Missions and given a chance to go to a place called Tesoros de Dios. Um, and they work with children who have disabilities and it's a center that offers therapies. So equine therapy, physiotherapy, counseling, um, early childhood interventions, autism program. There's so many different avenues that they use to help children there. And I was like, I am not trained as a teacher. I am not a, a physiotherapist. I, I really, uh, I was like, can I come and see what you do? And so I committed to three months. And as I kind of talked with them, they were like, oh, well, you know music. Um, we have a music therapy program. It's really underdeveloped. Um, and there's room for growth. And I said, just so you know, I'm not a music therapist either. <laughs> um, I was like, I love kids. I have worked with people of all ages up to this point. I love music. Um, and I'm willing to learn. And thankfully, a, a music therapist here in Canada um, let me talk to her. And we kind of worked through what some simple steps to building a program would look like. And so I went and I, uh, I started doing that and it was really cool. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so did that, did music therapy, is that like kind of, at least when you started, that was your kind of primary block of time used? Like that's your, that was your job, I suppose, when you went there. For the first three months, so September to December 2019, yes, mm -hmm. that was my purpose. I had, um, I knew in my heart that I wanted to go back for a longer period of time. But I just wasn't sure that I had any skills that were actually useful and helpful to this context. I had never in my life wanted to learn Spanish. I'd always imagined I'd learn French or Arabic or something like that. And so I was like, yeah, I guess I could go to a Spanish-speaking country, but, you know, not really where my heart's at. Um, and so I went, and I'm going to be honest, uh, the volunteer coordinator at the time was out of country. And so when I <laughs> arrived... I was told like, hey, welcome, have at. Right. <laughs> and I was like, I can say probably two dozen words in Spanish. Um, I'm incredibly lost in this context. I am uh, like struggling to communicate with the parents of the children I'm working with. 
or even the lady who had been doing the music therapy before me. And so there was an adjustment period where I was just like, I know nothing. Uh, and it was terrifying. And were there people there who spoke English? There were a couple. Okay. Um, I was not working hand in hand with them. So to give a picture, um, Tesoros de Dios has like 35 full-time staff who are Nicaraguan. And they are trained therapists and administrators and... Oh, they just do so many different tasks and they're all professionals. Really wonderful people, like just such incredible gifts and talents. Um, so they didn't necessarily like need me to come and be like a revolutionary or anything. Right. They were like, sweet, we're happy to have you. We have work to do, like join in where you're able, which is the very chill way th- that things happen there. Uh, I'm not chill <laughs> or I wasn't at that point in time. And so I was like, somebody give me a job to do. Someone tell me what to like, where to go, what to do or introduce me. And I learned everybody's name and their job position over the course of two minutes in our morning devos the first day I was there <laughs> and after that it was kind of like go forth be free join in um so that was a very intimidating experience and I kind of wandered around and I ended up um one of my co-workers names is Ahmed and he works with early childhood interventions and he's very friendly <laughs> and very uh, grace-filled towards people who say the wrong thing when they're trying to learn a language. Uh, he also spoke a little bit of English. So me learning Spanish, him learning English, we were able to communicate on basic levels. And I spent a lot of time just working in his program as I got my feet under me. And then the rest of my time was built building this music therapy program, um, which we refined eventually to be specifically with children with autism. And the beautiful thing was... Uh, even though my Spanish was so basic at this point, you know, just, I had thought I would be a month in and fluent and I was so wrong. Um, they were nonverbal, all of them. And so I could communicate with them actually far better just by facial expressions and motions and the act of giving something or taking it away or leading. Um, and so that was a really grace filled experience for me because, when I was asked to, to work with them, I was like, you realize I can't communicate at all. And they said, well, you realize they can't either. And I, I kind of was like, oh, okay, sure. All right. <laughs> Let that's, me just try that's this. That's a little uh, dash of providence, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was <clears throat> honestly a bigger challenge to just communicate with their parents and say, um, just follow my lead and, and we're going we're gonna to help your child communicate. Um, well, through music, um, which tends to be just drums and shakers and little strips of shiny cloth that have fun textures and the occasional book and a lot of YouTube music in the background um, and a swing set. You know, it's very casual. There's no soundproof room, quiet, calming environment, which would be very useful. It's like outside on the veranda in a corner while the mothers all talk in the other corner. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. So have you gotten, uh, I guess, proficient with Spanish? Or how, how, uh, how good are you at Spanish? Um, I could hold this conversation in Spanish. Okay. Uh, Don't. I will. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be very helpful then. Um, 
as soon as it gets to a very specific content, um, my vocabulary is a little bit limited, limited. So I, I can converse on quite a, a good level. As soon as I'm anxious or sick right. or very tired, that level goes down quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, to be honest, it took me a very long time to pick up the language, uh, partially because my lessons, I, I was receiving tutoring one to two times a week. Um, they were interrupted by COVID and a lockdown. And because of the internet connection, we didn't continue with my lessons. Right. So I kind of got stranded mid, um, <laughs> mid fluency. Uh, and I, I really struggled because of that, because I was living in a Nicaraguan household and I couldn't communicate <laughs> very well. Wow. That's intense. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you ever, uh, think in Spanish? Or have you had or dream in Spanish? I've had a couple of dreams in Spanish. They're really weird because sometimes I don't understand what the dream is saying, <laughs> um, because I subconsciously know words that I can't always pull. Right, to mind. right, right. Um, but I do. I actually I prefer to process thoughts in Spanish. Really? Um, yes, because it, uh, I have to think a little bit harder, and I have to understand the meaning behind certain words. Um, so often when I'm praying or, um, talking to myself, which I'm not crazy, but I do do, uh, I will talk in Spanish to myself and it's helped me maintain my level of fluency. So that's super great. I also listen to almost hundred percent Spanish music. Okay. Uh, and that helps as well. So I don't think in Spanish all the time, but almost every conversation I come to a point where I'm like, I wonder how I would say that in Spanish yeah. and then I'll do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't. I have nowhere near the same proficiency in Greek at all. And and Greek is a it's an academic language in the sense of like I'm learning to to translate it. So I'm like deep in the grammar, not in like the lived experience of of Greek. Mm-hmm. But I have that a lot too. Where I'll think of some grammar, uh, some phrase that I'll say, and I'll be like, Oh, that's interesting. Like, how do that's I like say a, that? Yeah. That's like an aorist pluperfect or something like that. You know? I don't know what that, that is. But... Yeah. Well, it's just weird. It's like I I definitely know. Um, I definitely know Greek grammar better than I do English grammar, like by a yes. long shot. And I don't know Greek grammar that well. Mm-hmm. But. So an interesting thing that happened to me. So in up until, um, I guess going back a little bit, I took over the job of volunteer coordinator, which is essentially cultural mediation. So was this, um, was this your second job? Did you go here right after your music therapy? Yeah. So about two weeks into my time in Nicaragua, I was like, yep this is it. I'm staying. Um, and thankfully God provided a way for that and a lot of confirmation, um, as well. So, uh, I mentioned to the director who was also my Nicaraguan sister and and I said, I'm, I think I might be called to come back. What do you think about that? And she said, do you want to be our volunteer coordinator? We need somebody. And I was like, actually like that is one, one of the few jobs here I'm actually qualified for. Mm. Um, so I was like, can we talk about what that would involve? And probably, yeah. Um, so I started taking that on and I was trained by the previous volunteer coordinator. Um, and that meant that incoming teams, volunteers, people like myself, um, Nicaraguan volunteers as well, they all needed to be connected to where they were going to serve. There needed to be a plan for their trip. There needed to be preparation beforehand and debriefing afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, and just every aspect of that had to be done by somebody. Um, and so I took that on and I started learning how to do it and assisting in it till the end of December of 2019. So my first three months there. 
Okay. And then I committed to coming back and my job description was volunteer coordinator and that was all of 2020. And right. that's still what I'm working in right now. Right. Yeah, so mm-hmm. there's an interesting like that that fascinates me in the sense of like I'm I'm headed to seminary. I'm mm-hmm. getting an MDiv, the holy degree, the, the oh, yeah. sacred degree. And I'm going to, you know, going in the pastor direction, which is fun. But there's a weird there's a level of like dare I say undeserved grandeur that comes with that yeah where it's like (laughs) in my view I have my part that I think I'm called to and I'm going to be good at and it gets your quote-unquote accolades right like Mm -hmm. the the pastor but it's like if you didn't do what you did and, and what you're what you're working for yeah everything falls apart when it comes to to bringing people in Mm-hmm. right if you don't facilitate the link between people and and you you said you used to have the, use the word uh, cultural mediator yeah yeah if you don't if you don't facilitate what it looks like for people to come in and then find meaningful work to do and like and and manage that relationship at least missions coming from the outside falls apart really really fast oh yeah and so here's what happens um because i've seen really really good examples of of like people coming in and just being so honoring of the culture and the people and and not taking power for themselves because they're the people bringing money or things like that and and seeing that was like wow this is so good and what happens is ongoing relationships and the work they do is more than just a project and it encourages discipleship and christ is um brought either from the Nicaraguan side, because we are Christians as well there, or from the North American side, like God is honored in that. The kingdom of heaven is built through those honoring relationships. Mm-hmm. But the other side of it is that with the best of intentions and the most love in their hearts, a lot of North Americans coming to Nicaragua, but also other countries, if we're honest, they come from a place of power. They've fundraised the money, um, so they are in control of what happens with that money. And they decide on a project before ever coming. And they think something's going to be a certain way. And they come from their cultural perspective and expect things to work that way in the place they're coming to. They're accustomed to a certain level of of food and accommodation and and just living. Um, And so unintentionally, when they come in, they take control of the different projects and you'll hear this very often a team comes back and presents to their church what they did you know if they built a house or dug a well or something like that all good things by the way i'm not discouraging those projects at all they're so useful and they are necessary um but they'll they'll come back and they'll say yeah we uh we built this house and like we put in like 12 hour days and, and we got so dirty and sweaty and we worked and you know the people there just like, they kept stopping and we'd have to like, one of us would have to pick up the job and then they'd help again. Um, you hear kind of that story very often. But I think what North Americans don't understand is that um, there are reasons why that type of work ethic doesn't happen. Uh, so I specifically... Like you mean they're like the Western kind of yeah, work ethic. Yeah, like the idea of, okay, we planned a trip, we have two weeks, so we're going to pack in as many projects as we can. Um, What often happens is the team will come in and they'll be gung-ho on that project. And they're capable of getting a lot done in a day. Um, 
and they'll be very hyper focused on just working in doing so they might decide where that house is built and no one else in the community agrees with that decision they weren't even asked the community understands that the people coming in are wealthier than they are and they have power and they're giving stuff away they don't from a culture perspective they wouldn't be like hey that's not a good idea that doesn't work in our community we don't need that they would never say that they would just say oh thank you so much we're so happy to have you god bless you um and then after that team leaves they might have left divisiveness in their place they might have actually done more harm than good they might have destroyed relationships and i think when it comes down to it you have to understand that for a north american perspective we are very task and individual focused which means that you know if i'm working somewhere I will be nice to my coworkers. I'll put customer service first. But at the end of the day, my goal is to accomplish tasks. And sometimes I will do that at the risk of the relationship. The relationship comes second. For Nicaraguans and a lot of Latin Americans, to be honest, the relationship comes first. And that means that a task that might only take an hour for a North American to do with their perspective might take three to four hours for a Latin American to do because they will not risk the relationship by doing it in a rush if the other person wants to sit and have a meal or they'll take the time to they always eat a hot lunch together they they'll work at a different pace to support the relationship first and the goal second right um so that basic understanding when that's not understood between the two groups uh specifically when north americans coming in don't understand that Mm -hmm. a lot of harm is done uh and they don't ever form a a deeper relationship a christ-based relationship with the people they came to serve because they're too focused on the task. Right. Which is hard, right? Like it, it's cause very that hard. takes that takes a lot of time to build that kind of relationship up. Mm-hmm. And it's time that you just don't get when you're there for yeah. two weeks. Yes. Not to not to discourage it's hard, right? Mm. I mean, I think I've heard JD Greer when he he's a he's a um, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay. He's got some thoughts. One of the things he says he's like uh, short-term mission trips are great. Just be very aware that it's for you and not them. Yes. If you think oh, man, about it in that yeah. terms and you're you're okay with that, they can do a lot of good because they can in- inspire people to then give and and commit to re- long-term missions. Yeah. But completely. Have you have you read um, when helping hurts? I've read a bit of that. Um, <clears throat> it was valuable. I I also would recommend. Foreign to Familiar is okay. a really great resource. Who, uh, do you know who wrote that off the top of your head? Um, Sarah A. Palmer, maybe. Okay. I'm not sure. I can say um, people can. I'm sure if you if you mm. Google it, you'll be able to find it. Yeah, it's. It was a reading resource that was given to me before I went, and I took it with me, and it explained the differences between a hot and a cold culture. Interesting. So Canada, North America, we are a cold climate culture. Um, basically, it's in relation to where you are on the equator. <laughs> um, Interesting. But we are more individual, goal-oriented. Our social gatherings are important, but they aren't part of our culture in the same way. Whereas in a hot climate culture, um, everything is about family, your family honor, your family group, your community. It's very, very tight-knit. And most of relationship happens around food. It's around the table. Yeah. So there's some differences there. Um, And I think... Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong in this, but my opinion is that 
the people coming into the culture are the ones who need to be grace-filled and and be willing to change or listen from a different Mm. perspective not the people who are accepting the help right (laughs) i mean it helps to understand both sides of it but um yeah someone coming in for a short-term trip should be i think trained ahead of time talk they should have a time to process and learn ahead of time how to enter that culture well Um, and so my job especially now actually is to find ways to do that training to create programs to help prepare people to come in with the mentality of jesus is is already there their culture might be different and things that are there are things that i would think are just totally wrong from my north american perspective and learning to give that up and and follow a biblical model of I'm gonna I'm gonna look and listen and learn and consider and ponder, and I'm gonna ask questions that are honoring of the people I'm going to, and only after I've done all of those things will I bother with my own opinion. Yeah, you know my own opinion is the very last thing that happens here, and I just because I hold the money doesn't mean I should have the power and the decision making capabilities. I should actually be giving that away. That's a huge one. That's a big but one. Just because you hold the money doesn't mean that you have the decision-making abilities Mm -hmm. because that's not what we think here Mm -hmm. right no if you have the money you get to call the shots it's pretty simple actually yeah yeah and um i think jesus jesus also didn't hoard power to himself he had teaching authority um but he he didn't lord power over people or use it in ways that weren't good for them sure right and and i think we need to follow that model of of giving away our power and and instead yeah listen ask good questions yeah the idea of a beautiful question i hadn't uh, i hadn't thought about that in a sense like jesus perfect yeah all wise perfect under this understanding of the scriptures he inspired them Mm -hmm. and yet he he had to he had that that faith if you want to call it that he had the faith to trust his disciples to go out and 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 be his messengers yeah with all their screw-ups right oh completely, like even yeah. in like i just like even in um acts 2 right where like right before jesus ascends and he says you know uh, sorry he's about to descend and the disciples come to him and say you know lord are you going to restore the kingdom now and he's like nope it's <laughs> not for you to know and you guys still don't understand why i came here precisely and yet he trusted and and well and the holy spirit coming is a huge obviously a huge element of that but mm. god god trusts us to be the ones that share the gospel and be disciples and be discipled and all of that mm-hmm. like yeah when it's not about control or making people conform necessarily right right and i think that is something huge that i learned is that the global church is lived out differently globally you know my my background is white dutch canadian um and reformed and there are aspects of that that are are a huge blessing to me to have in a different context but that um a white dutch reformed church is is not what nicaragua needs (laughs) really no for real right crazy thought um no they and you know they are never gonna sing traditional hymns like we do um their music is very loud 
and you do clap and you do raise your hands and it's it's much more informal but it is honoring of their culture and i think that's really such a beautiful thing is the gospel is relevant in all of these different forms like it doesn't have to Mm. be lived out in one denominational way although there's value in the theology behind it the the actual practice of of worship christian community it's it's lived out in so many different ways globally yeah and that distinction is important because you know I think we we often conflate, and maybe maybe not, but I think I think there's a tendency to conflate the cultural practices we have and our theology into kind of one lump. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like you can have truths that are foundational to the Bible that stay that are that are, that are maintain that hold their integrity no matter where you are because they are they're from God and yeah. and they they don't change. But yet worship and and culture and people's experiences of God in a lot of ways radically change from oh, depending yeah. on where you are in the world. Well, and and that shows up in really good and and in sometimes difficult ways. For example, spiritual warfare mm. is very different in Nicaragua than it is here. And it's much more present. And I actually, I remember going there, I felt this weight come upon me spiritually. And, and I did struggle spiritually because of some of the differences, but also just there was spiritual warfare that showed up in my life. And when I came back here, that weight lifted interesting and and maybe it was being back in a context that i understood although i did struggle with being back here as well um but spiritual warfare happens very differently here versus there and same with how people reach out to god and how they pray and how their worships happens and what their community does as christians it's so different um and it's not wrong yeah it's just different (laughs) cool what um do you have any crazy stories from your time there? Uh, <laughs> do you have a category of no, crazy? <laughs> you know, maybe that question, that question is not exactly that good. It's, it's pretty broad, but I mean, mm-hmm. any like, or, or what's, um, maybe here's a better one. What, what, what's, what are some fun things to do there that are really unique experiences to Nicaragua that you can't, you can't really do in, in North America? Um, first thing that comes to mind is volcano boarding go on (laughs) um there are 19 i think it's 19 volcanoes in nicaragua there's a lot of volcanoes you can see them from everywhere i just realized that i know what the title for this podcast is something something volcano boarding oh my goodness (laughs) go on go on um and so some of these volcanoes have cloud forests at the top and some of them are active lava fields and and some of them cloud forests yeah, so it's it's like a tropical, like a jungle at the top of the the mountain that is the volcano, that is normally encased in clouds. Okay, I've hiked one. It's super cool. If you ever get a chance, do it. Um, in fact, if you ever get a chance to see a volcano, they are insane. They're so cool. Um, you you should not stay at the top for too long because it's very dangerous for your health. Um, but it was really cool to see active volcano like literally like roiling bubbling volcano fluids (laughs) volcano fluids (laughs) that's a really bad way to put that i love Um, that i want volcano fluids to be my album title for the next (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so there i did not go volcano boarding but a lot of people i know did and here's why i don't regret not doing it okay what what is volcano okay you're gonna get that go sorry go on so there is specifically one volcano, and I forget which one it is, maybe Mombacho, um, which is volcanic ash. 
and you hike up it and it takes I don't know an hour and a half or two to hike up it it's pretty steep but you carry a board on your back and you wear like essentially like you know those farm suits that like the one piece things Mm -hmm. um you wear one of those because you're going to get volcanic ash everywhere in every nook and cranny and (laughs) it's a little gross and you so you carry your board up and at the top you can either like snowboard but like volcano board down or you can sit on it like a sled and you you volcano board you go down this volcano on a board on volcanic ash yes um, now here's why it's both uh, amazing and also a terrible idea. <laughs> Volcanic ash is kind of rough. It's like gravel. Um, <laughs> so my one buddy, he was a housemate for a while. He did it and uh, he ended up falling off of his board and running part of the way down and it shredded his shoes. He lost like the, the bottoms of his running shoes were literally just shredded off into nothing. So if you fall on this, you will get really yeah. badly hurt. <laughs> You'll get road rash essentially because you are, you're. It's a big volcano. You're sledding down. It's you're going fast. Um, this kind is of, insane. Yeah, it's. I wanna... You can if you look up things to do in Nicaragua. This is the one of the top things you will see. It, like everybody's like, guys, you can you can, volcano board. This is real. Um, I still can't believe that's a thing. Like, if someone had told me, oh, yeah, volcano boarding, I'd be like, that's the greatest made-up thing of life. No way that's real. (laughs) No, it's real. Wow. It's very real. Um, To give you context for the size of volcanoes, um, most of them, like some of the bigger ones, take about nine hours of hiking to get to the top. Nine to 14 hours. Sure. Long time. Um, I've hiked parts of a lot of them, and... uh, some of them have like, yeah, jungles you can get lost in. You can walk along the craters, like really cool stuff. Really, really cool. Um, there is an island in a big lake called, uh, oh goodness, Ometepe. There you go, Ometepe, and it's made of two volcanoes. Essentially, that's it. One of them, Concepcion, is the biggest hill <laughs> I've ever yeah. seen in my life, and I was so glad I was not hiking up of it because. It, honestly, you are recommended to do it in two days. Yeah. It's that big of a hike, and it takes a long time to come down as well. Um, I hiked up the smaller volcano there, and there's, like, this beautiful um, waterfall. Like, more than half. It's past halfway up, and you're hiking through the jungles to get up there. The volcano, It's just gorgeous. Um, the locals are like, oh, yeah, no problem. It takes you, you know maybe two hours to hike up no it takes you like four and a half it takes a long time <laughs> and i'm not the slowest walker out there and it's also it's such steep uphill but we got to this um this waterfall and we hit it right as the sun was setting and what happens is this completely circle circular rainbow happens just inside the waterfall and you literally get to walk through a rainbow and Whoa. it's insane I have pictures. <laughs> yeah, show me them after. Yeah, cool. I will. Um, but I did that um, shortly after a bout of food poisoning. And that is one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> and I was I was like, I don't think I'm going to survive this hike. Um, but kind of the cool thing about uh, just meeting other extranjeros, other foreigners in Nicaragua is if you meet them... Um, you just hang out, right? Right. Um, so we were on this island and we were hiking. We were about to hike this. Me and my friend were about to hike this volcano. 
And uh, this car full of Americans pulled up and they were trying to communicate with the guy who you had to pay to go on the hike. They had no idea where to go. Myself and my friend were able to communicate and so we translated for them. And they're like, yeah, well, apparently you can drive your four-wheel drive car up part of the way. Like, do you guys want to hop in? Um, So we squeezed in this car with these four full-grown adults and their tiny dog (laughs) and chatted with them and went part of the way up and yeah like it it was just you know you talk with all these random people in random places and people come to Nicaragua for the weirdest reasons um for them it was like well we knew quarantine was gonna hit in the states we figured we'd come down here and hang out for a bit left our kids in the states and might try to get them down here soon, but we're going to hike this volcano. You want to come? <laughs> Just, wow. Yeah, weird stuff. Um, but the I would say that uh, as far as like cities go in Nicaragua, there are some really cool ones. Their festivals are incredible. Hmm. Street art, really cool. The food is to die for. Yeah? Uh, I cannot go back to Dutch food <laughs> after this. How dare you? We have We have such cultured cuisine here. And- no, we don't. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually, that's a funny story too. Um, people would ask me like, oh, what's what's a cultural food? Because everything is based on culture in Nicaragua. Sure. They have their cultural food, gallo pinto and pico de gallo, and like all of these cultural foods. Um, and I was like, I don't think Canada has like a national food. I mean, poutine and yeah, beaver we, tails maybe? Yeah, that was, we kept telling about them about poutine and they were like, okay so (laughs) (laughs) that's just the most condescending answer they're like that's your only cultural food and we're like maple syrup (laughs) i don't know um we did actually make poutine for for our host families once and they were like this is an entire meal like where's the meat (laughs) um there's bacon on a on a yeah we we got we bought like a roasted chicken and we put that on so it was really good but i was like as a Canadian, I've never made poutine before because it's what you buy at a festival like yeah, or yeah. fast food. Um, and so they liked it, but they're also like, are Canadians fat? <clears throat> and I was like, yeah, some of them. Um, and they just couldn't believe that like as a Dutch person, like I hadn't eaten rice every day of my life. Interesting. Um, yeah. So for the past year and a bit, I ate rice and beans or gallo pinto, a combination of rice and beans, two to three times every day. Um, and I did not get sick of it. I actually kind of liked it more and more the more I had it. Um, I miss it. People don't make rice very well here. No? Uh, I don't want to be judgmental, but no. <laughs> what's, what's the biggest difference between, I mean, I don't know. I'm not well versed in our rice making abilities here in yeah. North America, but. I don't know. It's, it's just better. <laughs> um, the, their meal, uh, gallo pinto is you take your leftover beans and your leftover rice and then you cook them together. And it's a dish. Sure. Uh, and then you usually will have like a tortilla and, and cheese, like queso on the side and maybe some vegetables or meat. And you eat that most times for supper. And then you have just plain rice and plain beans for lunch most days. And then breakfast, if there's nothing else in the house, you would just eat leftover rice. Um, or you'd have like a pancito, a little bit of bread, pancito, <laughs> and your coffee. Um, I'm gluten free. So every meal except for breakfast was awesome for me. Yeah. Um, I'm told I missed out on a huge part of the culture because I just never eat their bread. And that's like, you buy it on the street, fresh every day. It's all these, always in a triangle. Um, 
looked really good never mm. got to try it gotcha but i'm told it was amazing and the best part of their food i don't believe it the rest of their food was really good um yeah I that's cool yeah that's super cool what would you say um what would you say to someone who's about i don't know 19 or, or high school or somewhere in younger than us who's looking into maybe following in sort of the same footsteps hmm. like who's who maybe they're just wrestling through you know maybe they see the importance of missions and they're wrestling through what that looks like for them personally and and if they might be called to go into missions like what do you have any words of advice or any thoughts on that i so do oh my goodness okay so to start i would say specifically for someone who's just out of high school maybe wants to take a gap year um is considering missions but is very untrained at this point and just needs some experience, some training, some discipleship. There are programs that allow you to go for a year to learn a language and be both taught how to approach missions in a good way and integrated into missions already happening. Um, so for example, with Resonate Global Missions, there's something called the cohort program. Mm -hmm. I was actually a part of this. I joined a little late, but I was part of this. And, and it was um, Zoom calls every other week discussing things, talking through them, and being given resources to study and answering tough questions. Um, it was all in Spanish for me. So my uh, input and what I got out of it were limited for quite some time. It got better towards the end of my year. Um, but that program also will take these individuals who are placed in different areas all over the world, but I was specifically in a Latin American context, um, it will also invite you into these intensive weeks in different countries. So that idea of a program, like an internship or mm -hmm. like a period of where you are serving and you are assisting, but the focus is not on your project. The focus is on you being built into the leader of tomorrow right. and being trained and being shown. Um, and it's the idea of you're bearing witness to the kingdom of God as it's being built. Um, so that I would say if you feel called to go and you're interested, but you're like, I'm not sure if I'm a career missionary, it's actually a very good idea to just experience that. Uh, I can say that to anybody who does go, it will be worth it. Right. Um, it You will learn so much. And the general consensus from people who have done things like this, and I have a lot of friends who have, is your life and perspective and the way you approach missions or your neighbor will be completely renovated and you will have the tools to use your specific missional gifts in whatever context it is. If that means you go back to school in your home area and then take on a corporate job or, or get set up in your community, you will be better able to do that and still witness to your neighbor because of that time abroad. Um, my, my, I guess I, what I would say is if you feel you're called to go, God will open a door. It's super helpful to talk to people ahead of time who have done different things. Mm. Don't be afraid to <laughs> literally just, you know, somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody and be like, Hey, can you connect me to that somebody? Cause I have questions and I need somebody. Um, and in general, most people are like, that's out of the blue, but yeah, of course I'll talk to you. Yeah, I can't imagine too many missionaries would be would get salty about someone asking to learn from them, right? No, we're usually a... like, me? Wow, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what... Another thing is like, 
you were saying how pastors are are given like this authority and like recognition. And I think missionaries often have that as well, but we feel mm-hmm. like normal people in a lot of cases. Right, right. We're living our normal life and our work becomes our our mission and our work and our life are all combined into one. And at a certain point it's it's not that crazy. It's only crazy to people who haven't done it. <laughs> um because, you know, I didn't live my year and a bit in Nicaragua thinking like I'm only here for a short time. This is only a mission. Like I lived there. Right. It was my home. It was my community. I had friends. I had regular places I went to. I had community. I had my job and I had mission ways I was living outside of my job. But like it, it kind of stops becoming this big deal and you, you stop thinking like, oh, this is a really special circumstance. And it really just becomes your life, which is a dangerous if you are not still actively thinking like, how am I called to serve here? But it's really good in that as you build community, you you are a part of it. You are the idea right. of like um, incarnational mission, God with us, us with others. Um, yeah, that's cool. I um, that really resonates with me a lot because you can flip that and say there's no reason why what you just articulated shouldn't be true for us right now. Yeah, exactly. Being on mission, living in your culture, um, with whatever you are doing in your day to day life, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to the cross conference. Yeah. Um, did you ever go? No, I was planning to go <laughs> this year and it was canceled. Uh, I know. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. I've listened to it all. Yeah. yeah. And th- one of the things that they said over and over again, which is really cool, is you really are not qualified to be a missionary oh, if wait, you're man. neglecting you, you like the, the people around you right now. There are pagans five streets down the road mm-hmm. next door. If you're not faithful in what you have, what makes you think you're going to become some super missionary as soon as you pop yourself into another country <laughs> with another culture and another language, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's it's crazy. What you're saying is like from your experience, someone who's thinking about this, like the best use of their time is to still spend a year primarily focusing on training yes. before even thinking. Because I, I don't... Tell me if this is right. I think, and I, I'm for sure, I for sure do this myself, even though I'm talking about it because I haven't experienced this, but I feel like people probably overestimate their ability to not step on culture and not just kind of, you know, water buffalo their way through a situation. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I recognize it, especially because I have worked as a cultural mediator, mediator but um, like... As soon as I'm not also focused on being honoring of the culture, I fall right into that as well, thinking Mm. my way's best. Um, And I've been called out on it and kind of had to go, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm doing the thing I have dedicated so much time to negating. And I do the same thing. Um, But the other thing you mentioned, um, just the idea of like being... Like, like people five streets over needing yeah. Christ as well. One thing I would say is um, it is very helpful to be outside of your community and your context and all of your social structures to be in that place of learning. So for someone who says, I really want to learn how to do missions well, but I'm called to live in North America and they want to do maybe a couple months or a year abroad, that's still so valuable. Not because they're going to change the world abroad but because by being outside of their comfort zone and having to just be the person who doesn't know what's going on you're gonna learn so mm. much and you can take it back with you um 
and then step into missional living really well in your own community. Often our own community is the hardest place to start. And it's also one of the hardest places to receive good training. Um, so I, I would say like if, if my past year and a half abroad and working in missions, if that was over right now, I would say the training I received there on how to approach people, how to talk well, um, learning my own failings very intricately, uh, I would say it was so worth it because I could approach missional living here in a way I never would have been capable of before. Um, so it's, it's still valuable to go. An interesting concept with short-term missions for, or teams, for example, is that often teams go for a project, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to build a house, etc., And they'll send people who are not skilled in those things. So, you know, a bunch of teenagers are like, we're going to go build a house in, in Dominican Republic or something like that. Um, and they don't know how to build a house. And it costs, what, $4,000 for each of them to go. Right. So that group of 10 people, 20 people costs a huge amount of money to send. And it really, like building a house in Dominican Republic, you know, you could spend a couple thousand dollars and build a pretty decent house. You could build a bunch of houses. You could hire locals to build those houses. And you would never have to set foot there. But we're spending all this money to send people. And we're missing that critical point of we're sending people to learn, not accomplish just one random project. Mm. And so if you change the focus of a mission trip to not what we're going to do for for this poor nation that needs needs us, but we're going to get involved in the community and we're going to go with the purpose of starting sponsorship. Our church is going to connect to a church down there and we're going to send a team to that same church every year, every other year and work on discipleship. And yep. so funding is the biggest thing. You know, Nicaragua is a Christian nation they don't need necessarily um street preachers (laughs) they there are faithful churches on every corner um and some are catholic some are evangelical some are protestant like there's all these different same as us all these different methods what they don't have is resources Mm. um and they don't have necessarily the same level of training so they don't necessarily need a team to come in and build something all the time. Often they need a team to come in and have relationship with them right. and discipleship. And it needs to be more than just that short-term period while they're there. Uh, it needs to continue and it needs to be year-long. And it should really be in conjunction with somebody who lives their full-time on the ground. That's when you're going to have the most impact. And as soon as the team says, we have Nicaraguan neighbors who live in, our, in Toronto... There are for sure Nicaraguans around here. And the understanding is I'm going to get connected with Latin Americans in my area, but I'm going to go visit there to learn how to do that. You've got a totally different beast. <laughs> totally 100%. different thing happening. Yeah. yeah. And it's investment wise. It's a way better use of, of church resources um, mm. to, instead of just sending people for one random project that really doesn't need those people there. Um, you fundraise and use your money you think critically about how to use that money where to send people who should actually be going how they should be going for how long they're going what kind of training is happening you're preparing beforehand to understand the culture and and search god's word for what missional living is you're in the moment asking where is god building his kingdom 
and you're debriefing afterwards and saying, okay, now that we've learned these things, we have a project here in our home community. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that last step is very critically forgotten. People go home and they're like, my life was changed. And a month later, they have forgotten about it. Right. Very cool. Very mm-hmm. cool. Yes. You've got a, you, um, you brought a notepad. I did. You had thoughts. Is there, is there anything on that notepad <laughs> that you want to, that you want to dive into? Um, I didn't get too far in writing things down. I guess I would say, um, my personal story. So I, I really found that when you, you know, as you go somewhere, you know, you go for a specific reason, you're like, Hey, I'm going to be good at this one thing. For me, it was like, Hey, I'm actually going to be good at being the volunteer coordinator. I'm relatively organized. I'm good with people. And I now speak both languages. This already sets me up to succeed. Um, What often happens though is there are a lot of needs that need to be filled in any ministry and if you're a warm body kicking around and you have general-ish talent in general-ish areas, you're going to get given tasks that you are just not able to do. Um, And sometimes you can learn them on the fly and do them and uh, sometimes you you will not do well at these things. And I think uh, for me it was understanding that the ways I'm not skilled were not failure on my part. Um, and that there are going to be situations that come up you're just not going to be equipped for. And that might be an actual task. It might be spiritual things. It might be emotional or situational. For me, it was a global pandemic. <laughs> um, and so I guess I had been working as a volunteer coordinator, leading teams, welcoming people into Chisotos. I did that for six months, seven months. It went really well. It was good. It was, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I hope someday I get to go back to that job. When the pandemic hit, we kind of had a day or two where we went, oh, this is actually going to happen. And I canceled a lot of volunteers coming in, but I never considered me going back. And then I was told, you should get out of the country. And I had to think about that. And I had to ask, is it okay for me to stay? Is it safe for me to stay? Can the family I'm with have me stay and not be hurt by that and I asked them and and they were I was told my house mom was really sweet she she said hija her daughter um you know you can stay uh it'll be really good a lot of people have to leave but you'll be safe with us and there will always be food you know maybe it'll get a little tough but there's always gallo pinto there's always rice and beans and there's always god um which I thought was kind of funny, Gallo Pinto and God. Uh, <laughs> very culturally accurate. Um, and so I said, well, if it's okay that I stay, then I'll stay. And I went, I understand that my job is about to become obsolete because we're not going to have volunteers. And we didn't know at what point, you know, for how long. But I knew I had planned to stay all year anyways. So I said, I'll stay. I was asked to teach English to my coworkers. Um, I'm not a teacher (laughs) I had very basic level Spanish at that point I had no resources for teaching English and I said sure (laughs) I'll do that um so I suddenly found myself teaching 10 different people the English from scratch and some not from scratch and I had to learn about my own language I had to teach it in I was teaching English in Spanish 
and it was messy. <laughs> it didn't start off well. I spent so many hours preparing those lessons, trying to understand concepts in both languages, trying to translate the concepts that simply did not exist in Spanish. Um, so that was an example of me being asked to do something that I was like, yeah, I'll give it my best shot. But like, I'm literally like one of, I, I have no skill in this. I, I shouldn't be doing this, but I will. Sure, let's go for it. Um, so I did. I taught English for five months, during which period Tesoros de Dios, the organization I work for, was closed and we were doing all of our therapies via home visits and online and phone calls and stuff like that. So my work drastically changed. Um, and that, you know, was ended up being a really big blessing because before my work had kind of kept me in an office setting. I didn't get to join in on the therapies as much as I had in the beginning. And so I didn't get to know my coworkers really personally in that middle period of my work there. So having to sit and struggle through, how's your family? How is your mother? <laughs> What's your middle name? <laughs> um, where do you live? How old are you? Like all these basic questions uh, multiple times over and over again, trying to teach English and use basic things and basic conversation I did actually get to learn about them and have some basic but really interesting conversations about their lives and their families and and their jobs and dreams and things like that so that was really cool um it lasted for about five months some of them did really well with the classes some of them did not we struggled with internet connection and just zoom fatigue um and to be honest, we struggled with my level of Spanish. <laughs> um, but it was good. <laughs> um, and from there, after the quarantine, we were never officially in quarantine. But we decided to... My family... Nicaragua or... Nicaragua. Your, okay. Yeah. My, my organization closed on therapies because we didn't know what level the pandemic was going to hit us at. And... Um, Children with disabilities often have a lot of co-infections. And so we did not want to risk their lives, some of them being very frail. Um, mm. it, we said, no, we are going to be very careful. So we closed the center for several months, and, uh, for five months. And we eventually started back up, but I was never able to be back in the room for therapy again because of our precautions, which were necessary. Um, so my work, my job changed multiple times. <laughs> It was very, very um, jarring. What I found really tough was uh, being in quarantine in a different country without the language. Um, before I had a set social group or a lot of people left or were quarantined as well. Um, and I realized how important having a base back home to talk to was. Because I didn't, you know, I was sent really well financially. My church sent me in a very efficient it was just beautiful how god provided through them um and so i was financially able to be there and do my work um emotionally and spiritually though it doesn't matter what kind of support you have and mm. what i really found was just that um isolation spiritual warfare uh a global pandemic <laughs> not understanding most of what's being said around you um different cultural stressful situations that came up are very wearing i also got a really bad concussion in april so that sucked too um so 
being in a new situation, I had expected to be doing great. You know, I was like, I'm going to do all right. I'm going to, I'm going to work and I'll make it happen. And, and I'm a capable person, you know, I'll be fine. And I really had to face my own (laughs) brokenness and my own, like, just, uh, the, I would encourage anyone who's going into their first year of missions to be aware of how hard that first year is. Um, I hope you don't face a global pandemic. That was kind of an added stress that, you know, affects a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a new thing. It's a bit of, it's a bit much, a little bit too much. Um, and, you know, all things work together for good, but uh, still waiting on the good of that one. <laughs> so if, if somebody listening to this goes into mission and they're expecting to do really well and they're not expecting to struggle or they think that they have these great skills and they're, you're expecting yourself to learn the language and you're expecting yourself to thrive and, and know everybody and be super well liked on every level and, and just fit in really flawlessly and easily. The truth is um, you might not. And that's actually okay. But the first year is such a training ground and it's such a period of just figuring out how you fit into that community because that community will go on without you or you know like they they were there before you were there and they'll be there after you Mm. are there um you are not going to change the world you'll impact it in some way i hope but um i really learned my own flaws very very clearly during all of those stressful times um and i i also had to learn grace for myself and say yeah there is a global pandemic happening and uh that's kind of a lot and I'm struggling because of it. I'm still working. I'm still doing what God called me to do, but I also need grace. And thankfully the mission community I was in was really good at giving it. And they let me be a mess occasionally. And when I got really sick, they took me to the hospital, um, different things. Also hospital experience in a different country was great there. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I got, um, very bad food poisoning twice. Um, and so I, I think I was in the hospital three times. I forget what the third reason was for. It kind of doesn't matter. But their hospitals were so great because since I had to pay for it anyways, I went the private route. And yeah, they're like, they just check you in and they get you a bed and they're like, hey, how you doing? Like, hopefully someone's translating for you. Um, and they just, it was very fast and efficient and friendly. And yeah, it was it's just all right. Like for being at like my lowest physical points ever, <laughs> it was all right. Um, they were like nice enough to like let me lay down when they were giving me needles because I was definitely going to pass out during that experience. <laughs> yeah, it was just good. And they'd ask me questions. And, you know, when you're learning a language, your level of the language goes down drastically if you're like violently ill. <laughs> yeah i bet so they'd ask me something simple and i would just give them these blank stares like i'm sorry what what's happening are you real <laughs> i'm hallucinating <laughs> like what's happening um and they, they just i think they just kind of enjoyed it <clears throat> but they were really nice about it that's good they're like oh this white girl is struggling <laughs> um so that was something a lot of people were so worried on my behalf like you get sick like you can't trust the hospitals there and i was like to be honest like i'd prefer the hospitals there yeah i would recommend Mm. those was it uh expensive to pay for the hospitals no no um and i had you have to i guess it's not like the states 
where no. if you don't have insurance, you are screwed. Yeah. I mean, if I ever had to get like airlifted out of the country, that would be a lot. Um, and imagine. I know somebody who did get COVID, get really sick and get airlifted out of the country, but their insurance covered it. Cool. Um, and like arranged it all, which is mm-hmm. awesome. My insurance did cover my medical expenses, but like, for example, um, I had to get like antibiotics and IV fluid and a bunch of tests and a couple things like that. I had to get like a head scan one time. Um, and it would be like 90 bucks. I'd be like there for like six hours getting tests done yeah. and fluids and like all these things. And that would include my prescriptive drugs and all those things. It was not crazy expensive. Like the first time I went, I was like, oh my goodness, I hope my credit card's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> it was fine. Cool. Yeah. It was, it was fine. Yeah. Um, if you ever get sick in Latin America, their hospitals are great. Yeah. Yeah. I, at least in Nicaragua, Latin America is pretty big. Well, yeah. I, Nicaragua is very, is uh, considered quite poor, but very safe. Okay. So El Salvador might be different, um, mm-hmm. but Costa Rica, you'd be fine. Probably more expensive because it's all in American yeah. dollars, et cetera. But, very yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing you mentioned a lot earlier is you mentioned mentorship. Yeah. And that's something that's really important to you. Yes. And that's something that I really important to me as well. Mm-hmm. And I've been like really very fortunate to have some extremely awesome older men in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly with the Bible study that we have. Um, okay. Bible study that I have at my church with the guys is amazing. Such a quality group of, of guys. Most of them who are, have like three or four decades on me. Nice. But just like super genuine, honest men who I respect a ton. And I'm really, it's like, it's, it's, yeah, I, I managed to tap into them mm-hmm. a bit later, um, which is my responsibility. I decided to join the, I didn't join the men's Bible study. And then when I did, that's when I got access to these people yeah. who are just awesome. But yeah, that's something that I think. You know, I'll, just, I'll let you. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know you've done some work or some some of that in your church. And yeah. I'll stop talking. <laughs> no, talk. great. Um, so, I think mentorship has value in every situation. Um, in my own life, it's been a literal godsend. Um, when I got back from Nicaragua, I was very drained, pretty much in every way, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Just been a kind of long and tough year. Um, and so. When I got back, I reached out to my previous mentor, who is wonderful, um, and she's in her 40s, I want to say. She has six kids. Her and her husband are really, really good at living missionally in their community, and they have thought through processes on church and stuff. And so coming back, my own family, who I love <laughs> and are wonderful and, and everything, uh, because I changed so much in my year abroad, I didn't really fit in in the same way and it took some time to adjust back. And so being in a, in a different safe environment was really good. Um, as far as mentorship goes, I would say it is not just the duty, but the honor of, of different Christians of all ages to think through that and embrace it and put it into practice in their lives. And that can look like Bible study. It can look like one young person in your church who you're like, I think I get them. I'm going to invite them over. Mm. It is a little, it can be uncomfortable. Like the 
we're not used to this idea of like yeah. asking someone to be our mentor. Um, That's a big thing. We don't have that. Like the word mentor is not huge in our vocabulary. No. And to be honest, it sometimes can be a little uh, icky. Like, yeah. oh my goodness, it's my mentor. Like there's yeah. a little bit of that, that white girl Instagram yeah. <laughs> vibe. Like that, that sometimes can be a bit gross, um, which is unfortunate. But... And it puts a lot of pressure, like by naming it that, it puts some pressure on people as yes. well, I think. That's and, huge. Uh, but no, I think, I think biblically it's very foundational towards a healthy community. Um, if you think about the body of Christ and all of its different gifts and uses, the idea that the body would interact with each other in different support ways makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, I've both been a mentor and been mentored and I've been mentored by women in their seventies, by women in their forties, you know, in their 30s like different ages and I've mentored women younger than me and I've actually mentored women older than me as well in a kind of roundabout way um and it can be unofficial uh I think sometimes that's the nice part like when it's unofficial it takes the pressure off of people who Mm -hmm. aren't sure what's going to be required of them but um yeah mentorship is it's powerful it has the ability to change a life path Mm -hmm. and it gives an outlet for conversation and tough discussions that I think sometimes in in our overly programmed world we don't have um i think as a missionary mentorship has meant the world to me um and i had that through different people in my mission community and like i guess mentorship comes in when both with your differences and the things you understand the same right so for me when there were cultural um events happening that I did not understand and didn't know how to cope with uh, having somebody, another woman specifically, to go to and be like, what is this? Yeah. And have them say, well, yeah. in this culture, in Latin American culture, it's normal for women to take the side of men and things. And so even though you don't have a relationship with a guy, people assuming you do entitles them to treat you a certain way. Um, that's a long story that I probably won't go into. Sure. But it like, I didn't know that because here we might have a little bit of of that where women will treat other women a certain way on behalf of the men in their lives but there's more solidarity mm-hmm. with men, women here and there wasn't that there and interesting yeah it comes in in different ways but honestly i think i think that's a way that the church specifically can step up mm-hmm. anytime yeah and that would be super impactful yeah i found for at least my experience with mentorship is it's really cool I've because I have people who are a mentor figure to me in almost every way. Mm-hmm. Like there's one guy in my life who um, he's older than me and that's her, like that's our relationship is he's like a mentor to me. That's mm-hmm. said. We talk about that. It's awesome. Yeah. Then I have other guys who are like peers. Like they got four or five years on me and okay. like we're definitely f- we're friends or peers, but he's also older, wiser. And I like, I look up to him in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Then I have other guys who are only a little bit older than me and mostly just friends, but he, I don't even know if he knows that it's like, he's been a huge impact on my life over years. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just having someone who it's like, you've been around the sun a few times. Mm-hmm. I respect you. I, I respect how you deal with problems and I'm paying very close attention. Yeah. And then for them to then in turn make room for that because intentionally make room for that and maybe especially if you're younger or maybe now like keep you around even when you're annoying less Mm -hmm. you know and have that patience is huge (laughs) yeah uh it's a sacrifice 
uh, as like for a mentor in some ways like it's it's so rich but also there are people who need mentorship who are going to be annoying to you for a while Um, and I definitely was one of those annoying kids at one point but the the women who did like stick around and were invested in in my awkward 14 year old self like they made all of the difference in the world to me um but um yeah i think i've encouraged a lot of women like i don't i don't really talk with guys about this Mm -hmm. my impact is really with women um good (laughs) it's it's where i think some of my gifts and a lot of my passion lie um but it's surprising how many people don't have mentors Mm-hmm. Like it's actually shocking because it's such a biblical idea. Um, but yeah, that idea of a mentor figure, uh, it's, I think it's in t- Timothy. Yeah, it's in Timothy. Yeah, yeah. the older women shall train the younger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's from every case I've seen of that happening, it's so valuable and it doesn't have to be like a class or a program. I think right. it really shouldn't be mm-hmm. because the more relational it is, the more it mimics God and us yeah um again that incarnational living that that um preposition with i'm with you i'm not like at you or for you and i'm not um making decisions on your behalf like i am just beside you with you in it all and that really matters that distinction of yeah in it and and i guess it's this this kind of thing if we're taking this specifically to our churches like we Mm. both go to dutch reformed churches in southern ontario i think that means younger people look for that look for for mentorship and and it's scary ask for it ask someone and be like hey look i respect you a lot um maybe the word mentor is a bit weird but can i can we grab coffee sometimes um, or, or can we come over for supper sometimes or something like that? Cause I just want to talk to you about things because yeah, because I respect you a lot and I understand that you've got a lot of experiences that I don't have. And then it means older people looking, saying, and in, being intentional and inviting maybe some young punks who are probably going to turn you down five or six times, yeah. <laughs> but just being that person for them can be huge. And like, I know there's people that who I didn't appreciate and then later on. Yeah. When, and like I always remember that person as being solid. I'm gonna go back and strike up a conversation with them. You know what I mean? Yes, completely. I think you're only going to get so much out of that relationship as you put into it. And so, for anyone who's willing to be vulnerable and honest and like very open, that relationship will, in return, give you very clear help and and a good somebody willing to speak into your life in a good way and and for somebody who wants to be a mentor um if you are approachable if you are vulnerable and open and really honest about your flaws i think that's something that really draws huge like that was something that drew me in was my mentor um who's also just like a dear friend at this point because i'm older now (laughs) um my mentor is just very, very honest about her life and her flaws. And it really made a place for me to walk in and be like, hey, I'm this kind of messed up young person. I have a lot of questions. I don't have anything figured out. But I also see that you are older and you, you're you not claiming perfection. You're not claiming, you know, um, religious hierarchy or anything like that. You're really just vulnerable and honest. And when 
when that happens is when really good relationship happens. Outside of that, you're going to have kind of, if you don't approach that authentically yourself and very honest about who you are, uh, you're not really going to get a lot out of that relationship for quite some time. Totally. Mm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> do you have anything else you want to talk about or shall we wrap it up here? Uh, I can't, I can't think of anything at this point. This has been a great chat. This is really fun. Yeah. I, I really you. enjoyed this. You have a lot of very valuable things to say and your experiences are, are pretty cool. Yeah. So I think, I think, no, I know that people are going to get value from this podcast. Yeah, I hope so. Um, just to anyone who is listening, um, I love talking to other people too. <laughs> You're welcome <laughs> to look me up. I'm very disconnected from uh, Southern Ontario at this point. I, I've been gone for a while and fallen out of contact, but I, I love this kind of conversation. I'm really honored to be on here. And you asked really great questions that um, it's really nice to get asked them because uh, mm. I think what can happen for a lot of missionaries is, is we come back and we're like pumped up. Yeah. We're like, oh my goodness, you got to hear what God is doing. And uh, and people are like, I have two minutes. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, and that can be tough. So mm-hmm. being given a place to just share random stories and i i hope i shared both the joys and the difficulties in equal measure um i guess i would wind down with saying like as much as as god used me in that context my whole life and perspective and just who i am as a christian and a person has been completely renovated by god and i hope you all get experience that yeah it's it's the best thing (laughs) yeah and you can experience that so powerfully in a missions context yeah and you can experience that powerfully completely here here god is refining every person mm-hmm. through their own process in their own context um and mine happened to be a little different from from most people most of my peers but uh yeah it's it's really cool to have experienced that and it's really cool to see what god is doing abroad and in this local community um and i think there's such power in sharing those stories and so i hope that this podcast opens that up i hope that other people are encouraged to just be really honest about what god is doing in your life um the kingdom of heaven is also a place that is rich with stories of what god is doing and it's important to just share them they're exciting they're beautiful they hold power and Mm. so just share the kingdom of heaven just through your words and you've already made a huge a huge impact on the world amen yeah. Amy Lemstra, we will do this again. Yeah, bud. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at It's the Volk. Have a good one, guys.